You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Let's turn our Bibles over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. An amazing chapter that 700 years before Jesus died on a cross... God had something to say about his son, the Messiah. And uh, this chapter, just a a few verses here, short verses, describe the life, the ministry, and the mission of Jesus. The first part talks about his life, and then it moves into talking about his death, and then his burial, his resurrection, and even his exaltation. And the theme is very fitting. The theme of this chapter is, it's about the innocent servant that died in the place of the guilty. So in verse 1, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Israel was not a paradise when Jesus was born. Both politically and more importantly spiritually, it was a wilderness, it was dry ground. And the prophet Isaiah here says that when the Messiah comes, he's not going to come like a like a great grand tree but as a tender plant. And that became very clear when we began to look at other Old Testament prophets talking about the Messiah, even where he would be born, a very simple place, Bethlehem. We would look at the Gospels and see that Jesus indeed was born in Bethlehem. We would see him raised in a very humble home, under the tutorship of his father, who was a carpenter, Joseph. Referring to the Messiah, Isaiah says, well, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He has no form. He has no, no or comeliness. When we, we, when we see him, there's no beauty that we should even desire him. And the idea is that when you will look at the Messiah, the, the, the physical appearance of him, he's going to be just no different than any Jewish man. What would eventually attract the crowds to Jesus is not what we would maybe think. It was more about what he said. It was more about the works that, that he did. But the prophet says when the Messiah will you know, be born and begin to live, that he's just going to be this ordinary person. You're not going to really be able to figure it out. Even the, the people that know the scriptures are going to have a hard time figuring out initially who this individual is. In verse 3 where it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And 
he was despised and we did not esteem him. Going maybe forward into the latter years of Jesus' life, he lived on this earth for 33 and a half years, and the last three and a half of those years were his years that he ministered. During that time, the, the general you know, majority of the people rejected him and rejected his claims. Oh, there were some who believed in him and what he said, and they followed him, put their faith in him, were healed by him, had their sins forgiven by him, but the majority, that was not the case. They despised, they despised him. They shunned him. They, they hid, as it were, their faces from him. They rejected him. They, they just looked the other way as he went by. They didn't esteem him. The idea behind that is they, they really did not see any value in him. They assigned a very cheap price to him. He was even sold over to the religious leaders for just 30 pieces of silver. They were ashamed of him because, in the general sense, he did not represent the things that were important to them, like wealth, prestige, political clout, good looks, reputation, status being served by others, being hailed by others. And it's interesting because Jesus is rejected by many today for many of those same reasons. But what is called out here as the Messiah, the suffering servant, the suffering servant accepted it all as the price of love for you and me. So in verses 4, through six, we move now towards his death. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And then all we like sheep have gone astray. We've, we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This message right here in these short verses was the heart of Israel's religious system. The innocent animal sacrificed, dying for the guilty Center, all written up and kind of neatly put together in Leviticus chapter 16. And this is the heart of the message, and it presents the heart of the gospel message as well. The innocent servant dying as the sacrifice for mankind's sin. Surely he has borne our griefs, the prophet says, and carried our sorrows which is a reference to the heaviness that he endured when he paid the price for the penalty of our sin. Jesus bore our sins on a cross in 1 Peter chapter 2, 23 and 24, who, speaking about him when it says, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. 
but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Sunday morning, we were going through the triumphal entry and we, we were following the footsteps of Jesus all the way from up north in Galilee, an 80-mile journey since the Wednesday night before. And we, we, we got just you know, a few miles away in the city of Jericho and we talked about how Jesus was ahead of the disciples. And it says that they were amazed as they look at him and they were afraid. And we talked about how they were witnessing how resolute he was the, the closer that he got to Jerusalem because he knew that he was fulfilling all of these Old Testament scriptures. He knew that, that, that as the types and the pictures of the Passover lamb, that he would die as the Passover lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world on Passover day, which would just be about a week ahead. And he was just resolute. And I'm like, I've been thinking about this. What did he have on his mind? Absolutely the, the cross that he would have to endure, but did he have you on his mind? Did he have me on his mind? Did he have the world and the weight of the world and the heaviness of the world as far as the penalty of mankind's sin? But then also just the idea of what is going to happen to each and every one of those people that I redeem? What is going to happen to their lives both down here on earth and throughout eternity that put their faith in me and allow me to forgive them of their sins and save them? There's a lot of just intense things that are about to happen on that cross. And it says that when he saw the amazement and the fear in the disciples' faces, he looked at them and he gave what we've read a few times this week, the most detailed account of his death. And he said in Mark chapter 10, 33 and 34, Behold, guys, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed by the chief priest. And the, and, and, and the scribes are going to condemn, condemn him, speaking of himself, to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, speaking of the Romans. And they're going to mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day, he, he's, he's going to rise again. I am going to rise from the dead. Just go forward a few days, past the triumphal entry, move through the Monday, the Tuesday, the Wednesday, come to the Thursday night, and he has that last supper with his disciples. There, on that particular night, when he would finish that meal, he would walk out of the city of Jerusalem late on Passover Eve walk down through the Kidron Valley up onto the Mount of Olives and he would go to a garden by the name of Gethsemane. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 38 and 39, it says that he would begin to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He would say to his disciples, man, I I am that. I am just that. I feel like I'm about to die. I'm so overwhelmed. Stay here and watch and just 
just pray. And he went a little bit farther and he just fell on the ground. Just picture this. And he began to cry out to his father, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5.7 that as Jesus was praying there, he offered up both prayers and supplications with a loud crying voice with tears to the one who was able to save him. In Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus, as he was there, began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And and these doctors tell us that's a very possible thing for somebody that is under deep, deep, just agonizing. The term for that would be hemoditrosis. And it's, it's when the, the capillaries break in your sweat glands because you're so stressed out and all of a sudden blood comes out with that sweat. You're talking about some serious, tense moments. Three times he would pray, Father, if there's any way this cup could pass from me. If there's any way that Lance Cook, put your name there, could be saved other than me going to the cross and dying on that cross for him. Put your name there. Go for it. But nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. And we know, of course, that he was obedient to the Father and he, he went through and he was crucified, which tells us that, of course, there is no other way that we could ever, any of us, any man or woman could ever be saved. That time of prayer was interrupted by one of his own, by by Judas, who had walked with him for three and a half years. But Judas had, had betrayed him. And we hear this description of the Messiah that he would be a man of sorrow. I don't I don't know when you when you think about Jesus bearing your sin, bearing the effects of sin. It's, it's, it, it's a very deep and wide topic. How many people's lives have been absolutely devastated? The heaviness of a friend or a loved one or a relative that they've loved betraying them. He bore that. You felt that. I felt that. He felt that. He felt all of that. And here he is, you know, just... The night that he ate with his disciples. This guy was just with them. He had walked around for three and a half years with them. That night, he, he dipped his bread in that cup, identif- being identified as the one that would betray him. And he still went out and did it. And there, Judas would come with this, just this whole multitude with swords and clubs. In Matthew chapter 26, 47 and 48, and the chief priest would be there, and the elders of the people, and, and Judas would come up and identify him with a kiss. Once Jesus was arrested, there would be two religious trials. They were both, one was informal, one was a bit more formal. They were both illegal. He would also be taken over to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate. But initially he would go, they would take him not to the reigning high priest, which was Caiaphas, but they would take him to 
the man that Caiaphas had replaced, which was his father-in-law, was a man by the name of Annas. But he was so corrupt that they stripped him of his title. And so the religious leaders were like, we just need to find cause. We need to find just cause, something that, that Rome would see worthy of capital punishment. And so let's start with Annas. Let's see what will happen with Annas. Nothing really happened there. They found no fault in any of these trials with Jesus because he was innocent. But before Caiaphas, in Matthew 26, 62 through 64, Caiaphas would ask Jesus about, you know, some claims that were made because, you know, when he was there, the, 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 the high priest was there, the scribes, the elders, they, they, they sought to find some false testimony against him so they could put him to death. And they got up these false witnesses, these people that just made up these, these charges and said, oh, this guy was talking about destroying the temple. And so Caiaphas is like, okay, what do you say about these charges? And then he really didn't say anything. He remained silent like the prophet here says that he would. And then Caiaphas would ask him two very important questions. Are you the Christ the Son of God. Are you the Messiah and are you God? Jesus answered and said, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Yeah, I, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am God. And also know that one day in the future I am coming back. I like going on our tours to Caiaphas' house and reading this account. Next, he would be taken over to the Roman authorities, to the Praetorium, to Pilate. And Matthew 27, verse 11 through 14, captures that. And, and Pilate would ask him, are you this king of the Jews? And Jesus would answer him. It is as you say, I am a king with a kingdom. And it says, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he, he answered nothing. And then he says, listen, you, you hear all of this. Don't you know that many things are being said about you and against you? But he answered him, no word. And Pilate marveled greatly over all of that. The religious leaders... Luke, in his account, it says that they were yelling out these false charges. And one of them was that he, he led the nation astray. He's perverted the nation. The second charge was he opposed paying tribute to Caesar. He won't, you know, he's, he's a tax evader guy. He's not paying his taxes. And then he claims to be this Messiah and king. He says that he is a king. But as Pilate would initially observe all of this... and and, and ask the questions, he would come to the conclusion, I find no fault in Jesus. Luke tells us that at that time, Pilate saw his out because he realized that Jesus was from up north. And that jurisdiction was overseen by Herod. And Pilate was down more towards the south in Jerusalem. And that was his jurisdiction. He's like, okay, I find no fault in this guy. Let's send him to Herod. Herod was in the area, was in close to Jerusalem. He saw him. And when he saw him, 
he basically just wanted to see some sort of miracle. He questioned him. The chief priests and the scribes were there as well. And they were just vehemently accusing Jesus in front of Herod as Herod was, you know, standing there. And, um, you know, basically they mocked Jesus. They put this robe on him. And then they sent him back to Pilate. And that takes you to Friday morning, quite early, probably around 6 a.m. Friday morning, where he would be back in front of Pilate. In Matthew chapter 27, it talks about how Pilate remembered that at the feast of Passover, because now it's Passover day, AD 32, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the Jews one of their prisoners, and he offered them the most notorious prisoner, Barabbas, this murderer and this insurrectionist, believing that, of course, they would surely take him. But the people, interestingly enough, said, no, 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 we don't want Barabbas. The crowds cried out for the release of Barabbas. We want you to crucify, take care of this man, Jesus. Pilate said, you know, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And for you that, that aren't a Christian, here or online, that is a very, very, very important question. The most important and inescapable question every human being must face. Sadly, the Jews that day got it wrong. They said, let him be crucified. But it's like, well, what evil has he done? Again, proclaiming Jesus' innocence before the world, but they kept shouting all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he couldn't prevail at all, there was this like riot that was starting. He took water and he washed his hands in a basin, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. You see to it. And all of the people said, no problem. His blood may it be on us and upon our children. Heavy. Matthew 27, verse 26. It just simply says that Pilate had Jesus scourged. And that was a way to get a a prisoner to talk, to admit their guilt, to confess whatever they've done. But as the lamb here would go before its shearers and remain silent, so Jesus, he would not not say a word. Once he was scourged, his back would have been completely open, wide open. The number of lashes assigned to scourging was 40. They always took away one for mercy. 39 times that whip with stones and sharp pieces of metal and whatever could tear the flesh apart was laid upon Jesus' back. After that, they would put a, a robe on him. They would place a crown of thorns upon his head. They're surrounded by all of these soldiers and this frenzied mob. Swollen face. A bloody body. They would begin to play him for a fool, spit on him, mock him as a king. 
Then they would put Jesus' own clothes back on him and lead him away to be crucified. And again, on Passover day, 32 A.D. at 9 a.m. in the morning, Jesus would be nailed to a cross, as Luke would say in chapter 23. As they were nailing him to a cross, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they would pick up that cross once he was nailed on it, and they would drop that cross in a hole, and Jesus would hang on that cross from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., when he would say the Greek word or phrase to Telestine, it is finished, and then he would yield up his spirit. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. This was God's plan for his son and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Transgression, which means rebellion against God, daring to cross the line that God has drawn. He was bruised for our iniquity, which refers to the crookedness of our sinful nature. And the chastisement again for our peace was upon him. The penalty of our sin was placed upon him and paid fully by him on the cross. And by his stripes, we are healed. That's not a reference to physical healing. That is a reference to what he does with a soul that he redeems or saved. The innocent servant has sacrificed his life for the guilty sinner and the sins of the world. Theologians call this imputation from the Latin verb imputar. Imputar means to charge to someone else's account. Guilt must be paid for. It cannot be swept under the rug. We know from our own experience when we are wronged or injured, someone has to answer for that. Either you or the other person. I remember rolling up on my bike to a, a, a fender bender, a, a little bit more of a fender bender than just a fender bender, but be that as it may, the people got out of the car, there was a police officer that was there, and they were trying to reconcile what was going on. There was, there was some damage, and there was some cost. Somebody was guilty, and they were, they were not going to leave that whole set until they figured out the details so that they could find out who was guilty and who would pay that cost. If it's going to be put right, someone has to pay the cost. And so it is with God as He looks at our sin. Because that's what separates us, His crowning act of creation, human beings who are born into this world, fallen, depraved, sinners with sinful nature, and our sin separates us from him. And so th- th- this is what it is with God. There is a penalty of sin. That separation between him and sinners. And guilt must be paid for. And out of love for us, God charged that infinite debt of all of my, my sin and your sin and all of mankind's sin 
to a substitute. Imputation. He charged another. And that was his son. And the son willingly, lovingly, out of love for us and out of obedience to the father, placed himself in the place of sinful man and took on the unbearable weight of our guilt that was imputed to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The challenge for mankind is accepting our guilt. Romans 4, verse 5, Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. That means that God declares guilty people innocent. But our human nature fights to be right. We look in the mirror and say, not guilty. There's a reason why we shift blame. There's a reason why our problems always seem to be someone else's problems and not ours. There's a reason why parents will blame the children and the children blame their siblings. There's a reason that Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. There's a reason that we passed the buck. We have a hard time with personal guilt. We have a hard time. Human nature has a hard time accepting guilt. We want others to bear it for us. So we point the finger. We, we, we dump our guilt on others. But where we are guilty, we will bear that guilt until that guilt is taken away. We can deny it, try and shift it to someone else. But where we are guilty, that guilt will remain until it is taken away. Guilt must be paid for as, as it relates to the guilt of sin. It cannot be swept under the rug. And what makes our unbearable guilt go away? Who can bear it for us? Again, surely He, speaking of Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace. The punishment that it would require upon the innocent to allow you and I, the guilty, to be redeemed and forgiven and to be saved and to have that peace with God. was upon him. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin and our guilt, and he removed it from our lives. That's how God, our judge, becomes God, our justifier. And if God forgives you, isn't that enough? Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, speaking of his son, who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
All our guilt must go to Christ and all of our righteousness must come from Christ. This is God's way of release for guilty people and there is no other way. No other way. On this Good Friday, take a good hard look at Jesus. By faith, see his dying love for you. What is it worth? As I said this morning, God just woke me up and said, pass the word. May we know that God counts us worthy of the death of his son. The the, the blood flowing from the cross flows towards me. It flows towards you. The blood flowing from the cross flows towards the person that's empty, the person that's broken, the brokenhearted, the hopeless. The blood that flows from the cross flows towards those that are shackled in sin. Those that are just in bondage to sin. It flows towards those caught up in lust and immorality. It flows towards every guilty sinner. The blood of Jesus is flowing out to sinners of all kinds, taking from them their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears, their sorrow, their despair, giving them a whole new life. Jesus' invitation to the world from that cross is let me have your guilt. The guilt that is the result of sin. He would say to us tonight, I don't want you to bear that guilt one more moment. My Father has laid your iniquity on me. Let me bear your grief Let me carry your sorrow. Let my chastisement give you the peace that you long for, which is right standing with the Father. Let my stripes heal your soul. Colossians 1, in verse 13, it would say about Jesus, He has delivered us from the power of darkness conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son, the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of His sins. I don't know what owns you, but something does. But just make sure, before you leave this planet, you have been bought by Jesus Christ. And that's what redemption is all about. Over six million slaves in the Roman world, they knew a lot about redemption. A slave was someone typically that couldn't pay a debt that they owed. And someone came along, maybe at a debtor's prison, and paid the debt, their debt. And the one that pays the price owns the merchandise. And on the cross, Jesus, he paid our debt. He redeemed us with his precious blood, as Peter would say and. In First Peter, and, and in Him, we also have the forgiveness 
of sins. That's just so important. The Greek word forgiveness is the Greek word athamai, and it basically means to, to send away. And I know some of you Bible students know this, but on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the, the nation would be dealing with the sin of the nation, there would be, there would be what they called the scapegoat. It was a really cool deal. There were two goats. The second goat was the scapegoat. It was taken out of the city. Once the high priest would lay his hands upon that goat, symbolizing the sin of the nation upon that, that goat would be taken outside of the city and it would just be like, get out of here. <laughs> Go. And the, the people, whoever were part of that ceremony, watch, when they would see that goat like, I can't see it no more, they would begin to party. They'd begin to celebrate. Just like, yes. And it's a picture of what God does with our sin. Jesus has taken our sins upon him. As the psalmist would say in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from our life. Micah 7, 18, you will cast our sins into the depths, depths of the sea. Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's what Good Friday is all about. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure there are many, many, many reasons that, that uh, have drawn us to get in our car and drive to a, a service like this tonight. You know our hearts. You know every reason. For some, it might be they're, 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 they're saved. They're walking with you, and they just out of honor, want to come and remember your sacrifice. They want to worship you, the exalted one. Maybe others, uh, just, it's been a while since they've been in a setting where your word has been opened, where your son has been worshipped. And, and it's, it's just, it's a day, it's a, a day that is recognized by people all around the world. It's a a solemn day, and just something drew them here. They just felt like, man, it's good for, I need to be here. Maybe others, they just were invited. They don't, they don't know you personally, but Lord, you know our hearts. And as we walk through these scriptures, we do so to allow you to speak to us, to allow you to encourage us and Exhort us where that is needed, convict us where that is needed, and to direct us. And Father, for any here that would just, you know, find that they are not in right standing with you, whatever that would mean. Maybe they're, they're not saved, or maybe they're, they're a prodigal, like they've walked away from you, and they just haven't been following you. They haven't been just... The relationship with you is just dried up. 
But tonight, we've opened your word, we've worshipped you, and the, the closeness that they once had, they've missed that, and maybe they long for that. Whatever it is, Lord, we want to give you just a chance to change lives. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed in this room, we don't have time for a big, like, come forward invitation, but if you feel the Lord has spoken to your heart and you would just say, man, I would like you to pray for me, Pastor Lance. Would you just raise your hand up so I can see your hand? The Lord has spoke to my, praise the Lord. See these hands going up over here, in the front, all over. Anybody over here on the left side, my, your right side? Just the Lord has spoke to your heart. Right on, man. Praise the Lord. Lord, we are living in some very interesting days. We can really get set in our ways. Fear has gripped many people. Pride has blossomed in many hearts. In these just closing moments, Lord, would you please just take away fear. Just drive away doubt. (laughs) Just pulverize pride. And may a humility set upon this room. And even those that are watching online, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Fill this place. And for these that have raised their hands and maybe others, just put your hand up so God can see it. I'm not looking, just the Lord's looking. Say, that is me. Lord, you see these hands, maybe even in a home. And you see how they're reaching up to you. They're reaching out to you. They're saying, I need you. Whatever that might be, Lord, for those who would give their life to you tonight, they would ask you to save them. Lord, do that. And if that is you, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so just right now, he's listening. Say, oh, Father, I'm a sinner, and I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died on that cross for me. Just tell him that. I believe that you rose from the dead for me, so come into my life. And ask him to save you. For the the heart that is broken here. For the hurting. For the person that is just like, I need to come back to you. Whatever that is, just confess that to the Lord right now. For spiritual apathy, Lord. I've been crying out all week. Just make me more alive with you. Lord, I pray for that. For us tonight. May the distraction of the world and the bling of the world lose its appeal in your children tonight. Free us, Lord, from all of that. Free us from the busyness, we pray. May we just put all of that upon you. As the psalmist says, we can cast our cares upon you. Psalm 55, 22, and you will sustain us and you'll never allow the righteous to be removed. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us enough to die on a cross for us. Thank you for every life that you've touched tonight. We pray for the rest of this week. 
going into Resurrection Sunday, Lord, may we bless you so much as we focus on you, as we come together again and worship you, as we bring our friends and family members to come and and learn about you. May we see many come to know you who didn't know you as well. Bring salvation to your house. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus, your name. Amen and amen. Why don't we all stand? And uh, we've got one more song we'll sing together. Then we'll see you outside. God bless you.